there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, I'm Anya Lawler. This is Your Politics, your weekly political podcast from Leinster House, sunny Leinster House today with me in our studio, Paul Cunningham, presently David Murphy and Sarika Ni Riada. And let's start with the talking point of the week. Uh, Robert Watt, the Secretary General of the Department of Health and his performance at the Finance Committee uh, yesterday. It's certainly been the talking point around here, hasn't it, Paul? It has been. And you've got these diverse views. So from the government side, they feel they commissioned an independent report. That report has been accepted by government. And so if there is another senior civil servant attempting to get a secondment, there now will be protocols clear to everyone. So what happened with regard to the former chief medical officer will no longer happen again. So basically we move on. But it didn't really look like that when it came to the finance committee yesterday in which there was an awful lot of blows traded um, with um, Robert Watt giving a a performance um, which was really interesting to watch because he didn't seem to as if he wanted to win friends. He sat back and said this report, which was commissioned by the Minister for Health and accepted by the government, he effectively, in the words of Holly Kearns, rubbished it, said he didn't accept anything. Uh, he disagreed with, with most findings. of the findings, to be very clear, was what he yes. said. Yeah. But what he did accept, and this was the point, was that now that it had been accepted by government, he too would fall in line with these new changes. But to see the chairman of the um, committee saying that your comments fall well short of what one would expect from a senior civil servant mm-hmm. and Mr. Watts squaring up to him and saying, I don't think you're able to make such a comment. Um, you really got a sense of just how bad the blood is. And the thing to watch out for is it isn't over because we expect the Finance Committee to extend an invitation to the author of the independent report. And guess what are they going to be talking about? The criticisms of a process at which Robert Watt was mm. at the heart of. And the Social Democrats leader, Sarah Holly Cairns, she was raising, raising this with Thonish to Micheál Martin today. Uh, and Micheál Martin, despite the fact uh, that one of his very senior advisors had a direct conflict of testimony about what did or didn't happen in relation to this botched appointment to the uh, professorship in Trinity, uh, he backed Robert Watt fairly and squarely. It's important he stays in post. Yeah, he did. And he didn't, I suppose. He did, you know, and he spoke about how important he's been uh, during COVID times and everything. And he praised the work that he's done up to date. At the same time, he praised the report as well and said that he thought it was a very good report. So it's hard to read what his actual attitude about it is, I suppose, given what he said. But no doubt about it, yesterday's committee meeting, you know, oftentimes we talk about politicians trying to use committee meetings as an occasion to kind of um, take a stance and to draw some attention on themselves. But I think they were genuinely shocked yesterday in the reaction that they had to uh, what Robert Watt was saying to them. Yeah, just one thing about uh, Holly Kearns' questions to the Thornish. The, she did ask him, um, how was Mr Watt going to be held accountable for the errors which had been identified by the independent report? And um, Micheál Martin was silent on that. So we still don't know if the government will or will not take any action on foot of it. So where does this... Where does this leave us at the end of it all, David? I know everyone's been talking about it all week. It was clearly the big drama of the week. But in terms of fallout, consequences? Well, the government is saying they're going to implement 
um, the recommendations of the report to ensure something like this doesn't happen again. But they had policies that it wasn't supposed to happen in the first place. So they're going to implement the policies they already had. Indeed. And the one thing about Robert Watt, which you have to remember, is that his last job was as Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. In other words, that's the department which tries to make sure the government doesn't spend money willy nilly and there's an element of control. And so the person who used to run that department is basically found partly culpable in terms of sanctioning 20 million euro of spending mm-hmm. without getting the appropriate approval of government and the Minister for Health. And then it transpires that uh, there wasn't either the um, sanction from the chief of staff of the Taoiseach's office, Deirdre Galan. Robert Watt said that there that it had been run by her. She, in her abundantly clear statement, said it wasn't run by me and said mm-hmm. that the characterization about her approval of it was uh, without foundation. So I think it leaves a lot of questions to be answered. And I think more than anything else, I think it was the attitude of Robert yeah. Watt to the committee and to the type of types of questions he was being asked that are going to cause that is going to cause trouble. I think that's and it in, in a sentence, Sonia, is in, to answer your question, what's going to happen? Nothing. But the relationships between those key players yeah. have now been disrupted. Well, it's been an interesting light, hasn't it? Um, you know, the relationship between the permanent government and, if you like, the political government. And we all know the series, Yes, Minister, it's almost become, you know, a political trope, a poli- political mm-hmm. cliche. But it is fascinating, isn't it, to see the balance of power there. And especially when it's played out. That's the best. No doubt there are big rows when big decisions are being taken, but we never hear of them. There is, I suppose, the whole, we're always talking about accountability and how politicians are accountable to the electorate. And, you know, if you don't like them, you don't have to vote for them. But people don't have a say, obviously, in the civil servants. One thing I thought that was interesting was that um, David Cullinan had said this afternoon, uh, had sent out a statement about it, and he was trying to you know, blame Stephen Donnelly, the minister, saying, well, does he have control over his own uh, department and so on? So that begs the question, then are they going to try and make this a political issue now? I think that from the Sinn Féin point of view, if you look closely at the statement by David Cullinan, it's clear that they're not calling for Robert Watts' head and they're trying to push it all back on the political system. But in reality, if you look at people like David Cullinan, you can see he's thinking that maybe in two years time, he could easily be sitting in the chair currently occupied by Stephen Donnelly as Minister for Health. And which Secretary General will he have to work with? Robert Watt. And that's an interesting kind of dynamic too. Let's move on. The other big news of the week, of course, is loads of money, loads and loads and loads of money, David. Yeah. So loads of money is good and bad. It is good because you're going to have the money. But if you're a government, it's bad because you're going to have a lot of pressure from people asking you to spend it. So really what happened this week is that we had this big report from the government and it outlined how much of a surplus it's going to have uh, this year which is going to be around 10 billion euro and then next year 16 billion euro. The other thing that was interesting is that um, the report showed they'd actually paid off some debt. We were talking about this earlier in the office and uh, it's interesting. So it looks like their the level of debt is now down to 224 billion euro for 
last year. The national so, debt. Yeah. The national debt. So that is that is good news. The other thing is the debt in proportion to the size of the economy that's falling as well. Obviously, we know there's lots of questions about the size of the economy. But today we had the kind of pushback because I think politically the people are looking for ways in which that money could be spent. So today we had the um, Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, saying that they need to be prepared for mm -hmm. any sort of austerity that might come down the line and make sure they've saved up money in order to be able to counteract any downturn in the economy. They're already saying cool your jets in terms of wishing money. Oh, they're saying cool your jets, but equally, Surika, if you look back, particularly at that kind of big bazooka on the cost of living we got in the budget last year, this budget this year, it might, if there is to be an autumn election in 24, it might be the last before oh, yeah. a general election. So what could we expect? Well, I think uh, Michael McGrath himself said in that interview yesterday morning that there will be tax cuts um, in line with the programme for government. And he also mentioned something for landlords. So you can imagine that they are going to spend a lot of money. I thought the interesting thing about it was, you know, the Taoiseach's comments in the Dáil yesterday about saying we're awash with money. And despite the fact that we're awash with money, they're finding it difficult to spend it uh, to resolve things like the housing crisis, which... You know, you have to ask questions then, well, what is the problem? Is it the whole bureaucracy around it? You know, why aren't we making more headway? Yeah. Mm. And also would like to see them invest more in infrastructure, wouldn't you? And that's the other aspect of loads of money being, you know, a loads of problems because the pressure over the summer, you know, what's your excuse when there's problems with health waiting lists, problems with housing supply, problems in education? You can hear all the groups will be lining up and the government will be there and money is not the problem. So yeah. what do they say? Well, this is it. They're going to be careful, one would imagine. They're definitely going to try and do something in relation to housing. We're hearing that they're going to have maybe more incentives to assist developers who are looking at projects, thinking they're not going to make enough um, action out of it. There are more plans being more discussed, plans, aren't they, at the but moment? But some yeah. cash will go in to underpin that. So that's like one example of it. But then they've also got the difficulties because everyone knows they've got money, including Fine Gael TDs who want to be spending yeah. some money. That came up at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting where there was loads of ideas on how they should spend all of this cash which is washing through the system. And then there are also problems. So like the chair of the, the chair of the Fine Gael group in the Shannad and Regina Doherty yesterday stood up and said that when it comes to mother and baby homes, there should not be this restriction that you had to be in a home or institution for more than six months before you qualify. Even though it's an 800 yeah. million scheme, she says, it hasn't heard any logical point as to why that's the case. And she said, money isn't a problem. We know we're awash with it. There you go again. Money, as David said, can be helped, but also be a problem. And speaking of Fine Gael TDs, uh, the departure of John Paul Phelan. Yeah, I don't think that came as a huge surprise to the upper echelons of Fine Gael. And there are so they've obviously they've had Owen Murphy leave the Doyle. Joe McHugh isn't going to be running again now. John Paul Phelan isn't going to be running again. And also we have Brendan Griffin. There are question marks over a number of other uh, Fine Gael TDs. So I think more broadly, um, Fine Gael is a problem on this front where, you know, it's got a number of well-known names who won't be running again. They won't be the only party in that regard, but they need to put in the hard yards now in order to take some presumably councillors mm -hmm. and build up their profiles in constituencies so they don't lose out come the election. 
And a lot of comment, Sarah, on the fact that, you know, many of those allies who were closest to Leo Varadkar in, you know, in his rise to being leader mm-hmm. of Fine Gael and so on, uh, they're the ones who are leaving the pitch. They mm-hmm. were, yeah. I'm sure that is worrying for Leo Varadkar. And, you know, people... There's been a lot of chatter about this in the canteen over the past week and people, <laughs> you know, wondering, well, how invested is Leo Varadkar himself, you know, with all his closest allies, as you say, departing the pitch? Is he how invested is he um, after his years as Tanishta as Taoiseach? Um, I, I don't, <laughs> yes, Antonista as well. I don't know. I mean, obviously, he will lead Fine Gael into the next election. But um, it'll all depend on how well they do. I suppose we'll be watching the local elections next year to see how they do in the local elections. Like the thing that I'm sure they're worried about is that the people who are leaving are not people that you'd expect to be retiring, even though some of them have been in it for a long time. They're people that are not happy where they are. You know, like Brendan Griffin left because he wasn't he was unhappy not to be offered a promotion. And he says he wants to spend more, spend more time with his family. But you'd. Imagine yeah. that people like that would stay in the party and in the position they're in and be around for the next election. A lot mm. of them who are gone are younger than But that's expect. something we are seeing change. It was interesting. I was talking to Eamon O'Quive this morning about this and he was saying, you know, there, there really is huge pressure on TDs west of the Shannon because east of the Shannon, you can generally, you know, be seeing your family during the week. But just the pressure of that lifestyle, the world has changed and you're seeing, you know, an awful lot of, you know, relatively young TDs Walking off the, you know, Dennis Nocton, for instance. I think part of it is also that it's like a post-COVID. When there was the COVID world, people were in the constituency, were home. TDs were actually getting a a slice of life that they hadn't had before. And now we're back full tilt and they're beginning to evaluate, like many people, you know, do I want to work from home or do I want to continue on with it? And I think it's certainly an issue. And then you've got the ongoing issues of um, social media scrutiny and all the rest of it coming into play and people making a judgment. Do I really want to do this? Am I getting something out of it? And if, like Brendan Griffin, you feel that you've been passed over, and that it could be some time before, say, for example, for the government. And you're slogging hours and hours up and, and down that road. Up and every down from week, Kerry, yeah. you'd be thinking, well, really, should I? Is it worth it? Yeah. Is it worth it? Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. No, not a notion of it. In fairness, I would say for politicians, they have a very difficult life. I remember a, a Kerry TD telling me a few years ago about um, getting a call from a constituent on Christmas Day. And the call was because his mother-in-law had thrown her false teeth into the fire by accident, you know, and he was asking the TD, what am I going to do? And he said, well, why don't you ring his dentist? He said, well, I wouldn't bother my dentist on Christmas Day. Funny enough, from a TD today, and we were just talking about the, the pressure, and they said they got a call on Christmas Day from a constituent who wanted to know where he could get batteries for the toys that his child is being given from Santa. Oh my God. And that's a vote. That's a vote. You've got to answer that. It was interesting, actually, during COVID, how many politicians said, it's great to have time with my family. It's great to have weekends. Absolutely. But in a way, politics isn't the only industry that's seen this kind of great resignation. We've seen it right around the world where people have found time with their family. They haven't been rushing around. And then suddenly they're pitched back into it again and they say, you know what, I need a change in lifestyle because those two years with my family, I really enjoyed it and I'm not going to get it back. 
Another area where some people are looking for change is amongst the independents. Any chance of a new alliance, a new political formation? Yeah, Michael Fitzmaurice, the um, independent TD, was sort of leading the charge in this, although he feels that it was reported maybe that things were more advanced <coughs> than they actually are. He just feels that... Well, uh, he certainly spoke about it enough this you week. You know what I mean, but yeah. he was saying that um, he thinks probably the next thing is to have some sort of gathering where you're bringing together independent TDs, but also farming organisations, people living in rural Ireland, those who represent them, and trying to constitute some party. Now, it wouldn't be the first time that we've heard <coughs> of this particular idea. Um, and everyone knows it's damn hard to create a political party and come up against the existing machines. But there is a sense underlining that is that some of the Green Party's policies, which are being advanced like on things like land use, um, are causing yeah. issues. And they may be, be able to... And do something they hadn't done before around that. And I think in, to a certain extent, it's also an indication that the Green Party might be the smallest coalition party in government, but it is advancing its agenda. It got it into the programme for government and it's being successful. In and this is it. the point Michael Fitzmaurice makes, because they're able, you know, they came together, they were a party, they're able to follow a particular agenda. Um, but the question is, and again, looking at the track record, going back to the Independent Alliance, looking at the current collection, and there are 20% of seats in the Doyle, isn't it? it between the various independents, mm -hmm. but their capacity to work together. Question mark over that circuit? There is for sure, yeah. And uh, you have to remember back to when Shane Ross, uh, do you remember they had a, a mass meeting in mm. Mullingar or something there at one stage and they thought that they'd, um, when they were talking about forming the rural yeah. alliance initially and um, they seemed to have a lot of support at the time, but they did have difficulty in agreeing common ground. And I think that is one of the things that you see even amongst the the rural independents. Like they, they, they'll agree on certain things, but they won't agree on yeah. everything. And it's like difficult to... government was one where people were maybe going into government and then they didn't. Yeah. But even yeah. in terms of the whole environmental and agricultural thing, I mean, the situation for farmers in the northwest, where you're looking at generally an older population, smaller holdings, you know, versus farmers down in the southeast, when you're looking at much better land, you know, much larger herds and so on. Very different and very different attitudes to the future. True. I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that um, we did have a farmers party in Ireland and that ultimately was subsumed into what became Fine Gael. And so there are parties there who feel they represent farmers. The only thing is that they are in coalition with the Green Party and introducing mm. policies which some farmers take issue with. I think that's probably central to was it as the, well. Was that the Clon the Thalun? It was. Yeah. I mean, because they were, they I mean, they did, were part of two governments. So it just shows that you can get in, you can influence. But to bring it back to your point, Anya, can they agree on that? Yeah, and well, it's it, a bit it, like the Social Democrats and Labour working together, isn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. the, the logic is there, but, you know, the personalities haven't agreed on that. So it's it's far, worth bearing they? in mind that um, agriculture is a much smaller part of the Irish economy uh, than it was five yeah. or six decades ago. That's one point. But the other point is that it's absolutely vital to certain rural communities, communities that feel to one extent or another they're under threat. And when you do withdraw some supports or make things more difficult for the farming community. It has a ripple effect within certain rural yes. communities. I think that's probably the kind of interest that uh, Michael Fitzmaurice is looking at in terms of this initiative. But there's also the investment, sorry, in renewable energy and how you're going to have a cohort there who are going to be very supportive of that in rural areas. So you would imagine that clashing with uh, farmers. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing that's uh, been much discussed this week uh, was the uh, conclusion of the trial of Gerard Hutch at the Special Criminal Court uh, and the fact that he walked free. And this then gave a lot of our pol- politicians, particularly on the government side, uh, the chance to talk about the fact that he'd been a Sinn Féin councillor and what mm-hmm. knowledge anyone in the party might or might not have had about his activities. Um, any thoughts? I think it was just highly embarrassing for Sinn Féin. And um, I think that they were in a tricky situation whereby, look, they're generally in any sort of local election around Ireland. We have about 2,000 candidates vying for roughly 1,000 seats on local authorities. It's very difficult according to Leo Varadkar, to vet all of those candidates. Yes, even he conceded that he much. He conceded that all, much. Yes. And you could actually see him thinking that if they put too much pressure on Sinn Féin over this and they mm-hmm. have any candidate who turns out to be a rotten egg in a local election, then it could yeah. all come back at them. But it Having said him, that... It didn't stop them today. Like There's a debate going on as we're speaking on organised crime and we've had three Fine Gael TDs um, Alan Farrell, Colin Brophy and also Fergus O'Dowd all standing up and pointing the finger you didn't do enough to vet and Mary Lou MacDonald has to come clean and she has to explain what was going that on. That was really interesting because the Cian Corla, Sean O'Farrell was pointing out you know it's not the job of government to hold opposition to account yes. in this way it's not It's not the job of We've heard that TDs in the Dáil um, you know to, to re-interrogate statements that have been made yeah. uh, during, during a court trial uh, but there's clearly a lot of frustration isn't there within Fine Gael about all of this and w- wanting to have a go at Sinn Féin on it but Regina Doherty warning their parliamentary party maybe to pull back a little? Yeah because uh, sometimes I think that's seen by the public as just uh, using it as yeah. uh, a cudgel to try and get control over Sinn Féin in the opinion polls and to stop their popularity in the opinion polls and people see that and sometimes when you go too far with something like that people see it for what it is and it does more harm to your own party than you'd imagine. Yeah. You know, it's been it's been obvious for quite some time now while this trial has been ongoing that there have been a lot of people dying to get out there and have a go at Sinn Féin about this and it'll be interesting to see the next opinion poll to see whether it's had any impact or not. I think the other thing that's interesting is that um, the backbenchers in Fianna Fáil haven't been as vociferous in terms of their criticism of Sinn Féin. I think Fine Gael is now seeing that if the opinion polls turn out to be the reality after a general election, it could be looking at a, a stint in opposition and they seem to be happy enough with that. That's perhaps mm-hmm. where they could regroup. Uh, they will carve out that kind of centre-right vote. But for Fianna Fáil, it looks as if many of them in their heads are just leaving open the possibility of a coalition with Sinn Féin after the next general election. That view perhaps not shared by the leader, Micheál Martin, who seems happy enough to have a go at Sinn Féin when he has an opportunity. But will he be leader? By the time the decision oh, is made. Okay. <laughs> it's great we talked of Micheál Lahan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you know, this day last week, the dog was all decked out in flowers and all the visitors were here, of course, for uh, Joe Biden and his, his address uh, to the joint session of the Earth as he flew home after he'd been to knock. And then we had the big Queen's conference and we had all the great and the good. George Mitchell, actually, I thought some of his commentary, his speech, really moving, mm-hmm. really, really moving. And, for a man uh, who was 89 and seriously ill, travelling across yeah. the Atlantic and then putting in a performance where he yeah. spoke for twice you as see, long as he rang Ken to. Reed, uh, the former yes. UTV political correspondent who's also, also been has, having health problems and he mm-hmm. rang. George Mitchell took the time yeah. uh, to ring him, which Class. I thought was awfully Class sweet. Mm-hmm. So th- lots of really good vibes coming from Belfast this week, but are they going to have any effect on the DUP? Not according to Geoffrey Donaldson so far anyway, isn't that right? No, no. and we're all waiting to see um, if they'll change their mind after the local elections. But I suppose that'll all depend on how well they do in the local elections. If they do really well in the local elections, is that, uh, you know, does that tell them, well, you're doing well, stay out of Stormont, or is that a vote to go back mm-hmm. into Stormont? It's very hard to read how that's all going to play Well, perhaps out. the where it's really going to have an impact is, you know, are they prepared to go in number two to Michelle O'Neill in Stormont? A lot of people think, they're not really yeah. prepared to do that. But I don't think it's a block. I mean, we do know that there are some who, um, maybe if they're based on Larne, for example, who are absolutely obdurate on this issue and will not. But there's other people, and some suggest that Geoffrey Donaldson is part of that, who would like to go back in because the whole idea of devolved power is incredibly important to unionism and they fear that if this goes down the mm-hmm. tubes, it could be decades before you get back in again. And then you have even not just direct rule, which is an anathema to them, but direct rule with some Irish government involvement. So it isn't just something that they can hang back on. The party itself yeah. has got big decisions and they've got choices to make. Yeah. And it'll be interesting actually to see because this will be the first, I mean, poor Northern Ireland, there always having elections but it would be the first election in a while where you have a divided unionist vote because you have the Ulster unionists saying whatever their reservations about the Windsor framework they think the way to deal with it is to go back into a functioning Stormont uh, and deal with it through there so you know for the first time in a long time it'll be yeah. interesting to see the waiting between it, voters It does seem as if the ship has sailed in terms of any sort of renegotiation of uh, the Windsor framework the British government signed off on it. The EU have signed off on it. The government in Dublin are happy enough with it. And then the parties in the north, with the exception of the DUP, are happy enough with it. So therefore, there isn't going to be any change. There isn't going to be any major concession, I think, offered from the EU and UK perspective. Perhaps there's some soothing words the UK could offer, but it doesn't look as if it's going to be able to do anything substantial. And the deal that's there is going to be as good as it gets. Uh, yes, and it's funny, isn't it? Ar- Arlene Foster now saying Boris Johnson broke his word, but Rishi Sunak doesn't need the DUP anymore. He doesn't need their votes and he doesn't seem that worried about their disapproval. No, and we can enjoy a Tory leader standing up talking about how Northern Ireland's got the best of both worlds to be part of the United Kingdom. Wasn't that hilarious? This trading opportunity with the European Union. And the thing about that philosophy is that he's absolutely true. He's absolutely right. It does have the best of both worlds, but it has the best of both worlds because it isn't encumbered by the straitjacket that is Brexit, which applies to the island of Britain. I think that's that's yeah. the interesting thing about it. Oh, but th- this is the point, like that he, the person who was an architect yeah. of it, who was part of the Brexit cabinet. I know, it's as if everything since 2016 was a bad dream. You're kind of going, did I imagine it? You have to oh, scratch your head sometimes and go, really? Did you okay. just say that? Anyway, well, so. we've said what we've said for this afternoon. Um, we'll be back with you again next week to have more chat about politics. Uh, please follow, like and subscribe for more. And we'll talk to you again next Thursday. Goodbye. Goodbye.